Good morning. So, like usual, we will take the first few minutes in silent, silently sitting and settling our mind and body. Let's now cultivate the merit field with Manju Shri in the center. As the personification of all the consummate wisdoms of all the Buddhas. But this is definitely not wisdom in exclusion of all the other qualities at the state of Buddhahood. All the qualities, be that of the method aspect or of the wisdom aspect, they are all intricately integrated, not just held by each other, but they are of one entity. So wisdom integrated infinite love, compassion, bodhicitta, skillful means, all of those qualities. And for special significance, and in light of the homage to Manjushri that we are going to decide, visualizing Manjushri as the personification of all the wisdoms of the Buddhas. carries a special significance here. Together with this, think of the qualities of the Buddhas, both from the realization aspect, as well as from the freedom or abandonment aspects. All of them, both of them having reached full consummate advancement and that all the qualities are in full, in their full potential, in their full element of the potentials. And the negativities, even the subtlest tracks of them, 
have not the slightest chance to ever, ever show up. They have been completely irreversibly eradicated. Think of these qualities. Wonder what it might have taken for the Buddhas to reach such a state of being. Where could they have begun? What the journey in between might have involved? How long it might have taken? Thinking along these lines, particularly beginning with great compassion, followed by all the practices, hardships, penances, for the sake solely of others, from that point until full awakening. And in this process, wisdom plays a great role. Visualize fellow sentient beings surrounding oneself, in the midst of which each one of us is serving like a chant leader, joined by all the fellow sentient beings imagined here in human forms, yet undergoing their own respective predicaments. Think of our connection with sentient beings all these times and for times to come, without whom we wouldn't even survive, even for a split second. And all of our aspirations, be they spiritual otherwise, all dependent on them. To think of our commonalities that we share with them, of our aspiration, rightful aspiration for happiness, freedom from suffering. Also we share in our incompetencies in realizing this rightful aspiration that we have. Because of our confusion, ignorance, habituation and negativities, all of this compound in making the situation much more complex. Yet despite this, we are always for each other. In all varying roles, let this reflection bring forth a sense of affinity with the fellow sentient beings, affinity at the very, very deep core level of being, leading to empathy which each other's situations, conditions, be that of good or bad, and that giving rise to loving-kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, 
in accordance with the situation and scenario. And the situations that we reflect on, let these grow into infinite love of compassion, into bodhicitta, into feeling fueled, induced to do something, to help out, towards which we see the attainment of full awakening, just as all the past Buddhas have done, to be the sole, ultimate, effective way. So with these reflections in the background, let's say the homage from Manjushri together. Let's stay for a while with this attitude of bodhicitta. Aspiring to attain full awakening so that one could lead all sentient beings to such a state of lasting joy and happiness. Again, think of how crucial is wisdom and all the qualities required to be cultivated so that one could proceed along the path to the state of full awakening. Because ultimately, it boils down to addressing the deep-seated ignorance to attain liberation and even Subtle traces, subtle traces of such ignorance needs to be eliminated to attain full awakening. Of course, the wisdom needs to have the support of all the method aspect of the path, particularly bodhicitta, supported by infinite compassion, love, joy, equanimity, that ultimately it takes for wisdom to eliminate either ignorance from its very root or even the subtle traces of it from the mind stream of being. In this regard, Maitreya says in Sublime Continuum, other than wisdom, these mainly afflictions 
and ignorance and the subtle traces of them. They have no other cause by which they can be eliminated. Thus, in this regard, wisdom is supreme among all the qualities. Of course, it has to be grounded on a solid basis of morality, morality and concentration. But ultimately, it takes for this third tier, third step of this development to ultimately eliminate their ignorance and their afflictions. So that's why it declares supreme, wisdom as supreme. And the basis for that is hearing. And in that respect, hearing too is supreme in this particular context. Particularly wisdom, understanding emptiness. How else could one develop it or just wish for it to just pop, pop up accidentally? Other than hearing, reflecting and serious meditation, where would such a wisdom that understands the ultimate reality unmistakably can come about? And without such a wisdom, one may have all the other qualities which are, of course, necessary and needed, but ultimately it takes a wisdom grounded on these bases to ultimately tackle the ignorance, ignorance from its very root, and its subtle stresses be completely removed. So towards the end of full achieving full awakening for the sake that sentient beings could also be led to such a similar state from one's experience, all the competencies, all the resources required in effecting such a result. Towards such an end, wisdom is required. Not just required, it's a very crucial one. And towards that end, we are going to share on wisdom. Let this be the motivation behind this session and beyond. We are, we leapt at stanza, I think, stanza nine, halfway, stanza nine, I think, yeah. So I think so far we have come across uh, misunderstanding on the part of the realists in regard to the Prasangika's claim that things are devoid of any intrinsic existence, They're devoid of true existence, particularly in the light of this encounter with the realists, 
the the term that is used to convey the object of negation is uh, most uh, suitably the true existence. Because uh, at the realist level, even at the yeah, at the realist level, they very clearly uh, advocate that. And as we move on to the Sautantika Madhimika, they take a stand against it, although they do not succeed in uh, eliminating eliminating the uh, negating the uh, object of negation thoroughly. So speaking of the object of negation in terms of by using this parlance of true existence would be more pertinent in dealing with this encounter between this Prasangika Madhamikas and the realists. But then when you ask whether this true existence that's being divided between the two is the same as the true existence being uh, defined by Sautantika Madhamikas. I don't think of any clear uh, explanation about this, but I doubt it because the realist, in the realist eye, there is no distinction between true existence and inherent existence. They kind of lump them together. Uh, but then, because we call them realists, it would be more uh, convenient to, to anchor it to their qualification of this object of negation as true existence. So we have seen several misgivings, misunderstandings on the part of the uh, on the part of the uh, realists. One was that they could not think of any existence without being truly existent. They could not just think of existence that would have that would have been influenced by mind to, to the extent that is certain the, the Madhamikas are claiming. In respect, whether it's Sautantrika or Prasangika Madhimika, they kind of uh, present a notion where mind uh, has the upper hand in terms of determining uh, what things are, how they exist, and what not. Uh, yet the realists, particularly the Vaibhashika and Sautantrikas, uh, they just have no clue whatsoever. They are all in for things having objective existence from their side, so much so that they would they would be uh, comfortable. They would be willing, not just willing. They kind of philosophically advocate that things have to have a objective what do you call reference point, objective starting point out there in the form be that of partless atom or specially, spe, spatially partless atom or temporarily partless consciousness for consciousness as the building block 
So to that to that extent, they kind of carry this advocacy of true existence. So for them, it is completely unthinkable of any existence except that. And so they lump that existence and true existence together. That's how they had this difficulty in teasing apart. They either get drawn this way, pushed this way, or pushed this way when they engage in this discussion. So we have seen some backgrounds of this, and through that we came uh, clear the the criteria that Prasangika Madhimekas present in criteria that they present for for anything, for any phenomena to be validly existing, to be yeah, to be called existing. And we have seen, we have kind of uh, mapped that onto the discussion happening here. So uh, we don't have to... So all of these uh, objections that they raise, so far we have uh, we have tackled, I think, two of those objections. Objections here, we are alluding to to apparent or, yeah, alluding to a possible contradiction between what Buddha says and what the Prasangika Madhimikas are claiming. So, so that's what most of the objections kind of uh, circle around, but mainly doing with their own misgiving that existence and its true existence are one and the same thing. They cannot be teased apart and make a case for each one separately. So, yeah, let's... Uh, and then also they have difficulty understanding what, what, what constitutes existence. Uh, what determines or what defines existence? Could just mere appearance to a consciousness be enough for something to be existing? Or does it take something more than that? So, and that we saw in their first, in their first uh, objection in stanza, in the Harpeteros and stanza 7. That, that was in connection with the teaching on impermanence, saying that we both agree that Buddha taught about impermanence, and he highly spoke of the reflection and meditation on impermanence, so much so that there are mm, passages in scriptures where it has been extolled or all other meditations, almost suggesting that that's the ultimate thing that you have to understand, right? And that was uh, explained, saying that was contextual in comparison with other lesser and grosser levels of understanding, uh, such as dukkha nature, impure nature, selfless nature, selfless in the gross sense, 
the understanding of impermanence, particularly the subtle impermanence, is uh, very, very significant and very important. Uh, yet at the same time, this understanding of impermanence, no matter at whatever level it happens, it still is. Uh, it still remains within. It still belongs within the within the realm of conventional understanding, conventional uh, nature of things, not the ultimate nature. And there the term used was interpretive. As I mentioned earlier, that uh, this, this system of dividing Buddha's teachings into interpretive and definitive, you find only from the Chittamatra upward, only the Chittamatras and the Madhimikas have this system of what we call uh, what they call it, um, in, in, what they call it, yeah. Uh, but what what do they call it? The the system itself. It, yes, the, the the system itself, uh, the system of maybe interpretation. <laughs> okay, <laughs> A textual interpretation. So uh, the. The Chittamatras kind of uh, confined that to just the scripture saying the scripture is irrespective of the content is interpreted if it is not take, not literal, cannot be taken literal, and it is definitive. It, it, what it says can be taken literal, irrespective of what the topic, subject matter may be. So they limit this interpretation and definitive um, connotation only to scriptures. But then the Prasangika Madhimikas, between the Swatantrika and the Prasangika Madhimika, they have a slight difference. I think I will not go through that. Uh, or we could say, in the case of Swatantrika Madhimika, they say that they still lim limit. Yeah, they kind of are uh, kind of, they kind of are in both places. Part of their uh, claim is in alignment with the Chittamatra saying that uh, that scriptures that irrespective of what the subject matter they deal with uh, they need to be literal I think uh, I don't remember clearly yeah they need to be literal as well as deal, deal with, yeah, as well as deal with this, the ultimate, ultimate theme as a subject matter. The combination of that makes the scripture the definitive. Whereas a scripture that, here we are talking of Buddha's speech, right? Not the, not the Indian masters. We hardly speak of Indian masters text and others as interpretive or definitive. It, it, it could be applied there, but usually it's always in uh, connection with this book, Buddha's Sutra. So any Buddha's Sutra that uh, is neither of, is just either one of them and not, not the other, then that falls within, uh, yeah, that falls within the interpretive. But the Prasangika Madhimikas are very clear in that when they speak of interpretive and definitive, they reserve that only to, only to refer to the subject matter. So they call all the ultimate truths as definitive. 
all the conventional truths as interpretive. Interpretive in that, in, in that, that quality of conventionality is interpretive. It is not the ultimate. For one to get to the ultimate one, one has to still, the Tibetan term is tangba. Tangba means one has to still be led to something else beyond that. So, for convenience, using the term interpretive, we could say, for getting to the ultimate nature of it, one needs to kind of interpret that or bring bring it to another level of interpretation or another level of understanding. And then, and and then, so so they divide the whole phenomena into interpretive and definitive, and that's along the line with, along the line of ultimate truth and conventional truth. And having already dealt with that on this score, then the then the next uh, next objection was next objection was saying even if the treatment of impermanence only has kind of uh, confines to the conventional truth but it seems like even impermanence may not exist in conventional in con- conventional world because there are consciousnesses that see things as permanent so there it is clear that for them so far in their education with the, uh, with the yeah. they are still confused, showing that, thinking that maybe Prasangika is saying that anything that the mind sees, it gets automatically validated as, as an existing phenomena. So they bring up this topic of some beings seeing things as permanent. And in the wake of that, impermanence uh, becomes contradicted and thus negated. And thus impermanence not only is contextually and contextually a significant topic among others to be learned as spoken of by Buddha, but it seems like from uh, following the Prasangagamadamika's lead, it will come to this, that the impermanence uh, may not even exist conventionally because of there being minds which sees either mistakenly or unmistakenly irrespective of that. For them, it doesn't matter much. So the mere appearance to a consciousness that for them seems like that's what might be enough for Prasankika Matemika saying things do not exist truly. If they do not exist truly, there might be just mere construct. And any mind that can come with, come with any construct might be valid or viable. And thus, any mind that projects or constructs permanence on something could be as valid. And in the eyes of that consciousness, permanence is validated, and thus permanence must be the case with regard to that particular subject matter. And thus, its being impermanent is completely denied. So in this regard, we, we saw we saw how the first criteria of the three criteria that Prasangika Madhimika has presented. The first one is Tanyebeshebala Trapa, that which appears to, that which is renowned by a conventional mind, not not 
not not even conventional valid cognition, but conventional mind, conventional consciousness, subject, subjective consciousness. They thought that that might be enough for things to be existing, because for them, saying that, hearing that things do not exist truly, then just about anything that the mind can come should be valid, because they cannot posit lack of true existence with some kind of order, some kind of a regulation, some kind of an order. If there is anything regulated, they see that to be uh, to be truly existent, not otherwise. And thus, for them, when they hear the things that not truly existent, they kind of think of things being just hodgepodge, just anything goes, whatever the mind projects, or whatever appears to the mind should be enough for that mind to validate it or establish it, and there should be enough for it to exist in reality. So then the second criteria comes, that whatever such a mind projects, or whatever appears to such a mind, needs to be something that is not contradicted by a conventional valid cognition, another conventional valid cognition. Now comes the validity part of it. So not all conventional minds count in the ultimate. It has to be, it has to be also verified by a, a, a valid conventional consciousness. So that's what I'm reading here in the stanza seven, the last stanza, last line. Suppose you object. Suppose you object that in that in your in the case of in the position of the Prasangika Madhimikas, impermanence might not even exist because there are consciousness to which such things such as pot appearing as permanence happens, and and that should be enough for pot to be permanent for that mind having projected it. On top of which, the part being impermanent doesn't exist truly. So to that, the uh, the response was, but that is only, but is that is also contradictory on the conventional level. The valid convention of yogis has no fault of contradiction, right? So, so that's being presented there. But that is also contradictory on the conventional level in that it is contradicted by uh, this is what they project that this is what they uh, bring forth as an objection the things being impermanent is also contradictory on conventional level because of certain consciousness seeing that thing being permanent and to this the answer was the valid convention of yogis has no fault of contradiction that's such a claim by a conventional mind, not so, not so much a refined one, but a mistaken one, is, is contradicted by a yogi's valid mind, seeing that thing unmistakably as impermanent. So when they came back to their, uh, their, their claim, back to their position that impermanence, holds not the permanence of things, I mean, of compounded things, in the impermanence of the, impermanence of the compounded things holds in the ultimate. And then there is once again challenge, saying, saying, saying that it still goes 
goes against Buddha's claim that impermanence is considered to be the ultimate understanding, whereas you are presenting yet another level, layer of understanding that's deeper than impermanence. And there, uh, the response was that it was uh, yes, it has been just presented as the ultimate understanding uh, in comparison with other lesser understandings, uh, less significant understandings, but not because it is the ultimate understanding in and of itself. So then came the remaining of the eight, stanza eight. Now we move on to stanza nine. We did deal with it a little bit. They still have difficulty, they still struggle in understanding what exactly the Prasangika makes mean by saying things like true existence. On the one hand, they give some credence to them that they may mean well. There must be something that I'm missing. And at the same time, they are kind of not easy to back down and they kind of keep coming up with objections. So the second objection is that in the scriptures, Buddha had spoken highly of making, engaging in virtuous actions and accumulating merit, such as making offerings, such as, such as making offerings, etc., so that one could accumulate merit. And that's clearly, to the, to the eyes of the realist, uh, such a teaching, extolling the practice of making offerings, etc., as being very effective in accumulating merit, seems to validate, seems to point out that things must exist truly. Otherwise, there cannot be such, such, uh, what do you call, uh, such an importance being in, in, in placed on it. Because for it to be a particular thing as accumulating merit, that too, through certain particular actions, such as making offerings, not just anything, uh, there must be something. There must be something truly in the things. Uh, and thus they have difficulty. To this, the, the Prasangaya Madhimikas respond that in terms of accumulating merit by engaging in practices such as making offerings and whatnot, irrespective of an uh, individual's belief whether these things truly exist or not, uh, irrespective of that, merits will be accumulated when one engages in these particular actions. But the matter is whether we understand the things in their true, true, true nature, because that will have a big impact in how refined the accumulations become, how far their benefits go, etc., etc. But in terms of accumulating it, there is no question, irrespective of whether one believes or understands things to be truly existence or not. On whatever, whatever one is uh, siding with, we can just be, keep that as the background belief, but engage in these practices. Merits will be accumulated. One will irrespective. But then he's pointing, they are pointing out that there are certain other subtle prices that you pay unless you uh, clear up this, this misunderstanding of things being truly existent and bring that forth to kind of uh, play out in one's 
actions such as accumulating merit through making offerings, etc. So stanza 9, it says, Furthermore, from the illusion like Euclidean ones, positive forces arise, just as asserted by those who believe in truly existent things. So irrespective of our belief, when we engage in these actions, uh, the, the accumulation of merit is not a, not a problem, it's not a question. But, I mean, underneath it, underlying it, there are implications deeper than that in terms of how refined the practice becomes, uh, how limited the results become, uh, how long or how short uh, the benefits would go, etc. And then we move on to the remaining of the stanza 9. I think that's where we left last time. So, so far they have been using this example of illusion, or magical illusion. I think it seems like magical illusion as the example uh, on and off in the discussions. Early on it says that there's no problem in bringing, bringing you on the, on the discussion table on this topic that you are totally, totally uncomfortable uh, with. Uh, by by beginning with a common example of illusion, magical illusion that we both uh, accept, right? That was a uh, there was a there was a line that the Prasangikamadhimikas uh, uh, gave. So it's illusion. It, this is all alluding to that. So here, when when the realist here that things are like illusion-like, or things are like magical illusion-like. Although they themselves use magical illusions to to, to uh, reflect illusory nature of something, to reflect some disparity between appearance and existence in some certain uh, not-so-significant uh, ways. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, mm, they have difficulty understanding uh, things being illusion-like, uh, yet at the same time be, uh, be different, be different in terms of what things can do. Because for them to say that things do not exist, from, do not exist truly and thus are illusion-like, it's almost like there's nothing that kind of, there's nothing uh, that, that kind of determines some kind of order or regulation or, yeah, but rather anything, anything could happen, anything could happen. And thus, when they, when they hear that sentient beings, everything is illusory-like and sentient beings are also illusion-like and uh, their, their, their uh, reaction to that is is how could how could a illusion a magical construct magical illusion say of a person being and that of an actual person differ if they are if if the other one is illusory illusion product of illusion or magical illusion and all sentient beings are said to be illusion like then how could they, uh, how could they differ? They should not differ, and because of that, illusion 
because of that, just as illusion, uh, the, the a woman or a person, a being created in a magical illusion, uh, kind of uh, ends uh, with the end of the magical illusion. Doesn't continue with kind of a mental continuum and whatnot. Likewise, sentient beings should, as they are also seen as illusion-like, should cease to be after death, and there shouldn't be any continuation. How could there be a difference between two things which are both illusion-like? One is actually illusion and the other is illusion-like, with no intrinsic existence of their own. So that's the, that's the background. That's the background, uh, what you call thought, in presenting this uh, ob- objection in stanza, remaining of the stanza 9. Suppose you object, but if a sentient being were like an illusion, how, then how could he take rebirth once having died? Because illusion, uh, constructs in illusion, magical illusions, do not continue after the illusion is ended. Likewise, uh, sentient beings, everything, if they are illusion-like, they shouldn't also continue. They shouldn't have such thing as continuation after death, like the illusion, 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 magical illusions, appearance of personal things in illusion, do not continue. So they're mixing this uh, this analogy, taking it to 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 to. to uh, taking you to reflect uh, the whole range of differences between the two, the whole range of qualities between the two things being talked about as similar, rather than s- thinking that the similarity is only in doing with certain aspects of it, not all-out similarity. So to this, the Prasangika's uh, response is that when we say my magical illusion and sen- the sentient beings are similar, we do not mean that they are similar in all counts, in all the counts. We're saying that they are similar in not having any true existence. And not that they are similar in all counts, in terms of whether they stop, whether whether they have mind or not, whether they stop after magical illusion, that the sentient beings should also stop to be after their death, etc. Those and do not come under this claim here. What is being talked about in terms of the similarity is that they do not, a thing as delicate as magical illusion and sentient beings which seem like very concrete and uh, gross compared to that, a solid, uh, do not differ in lacking any true existence. And they have, they have, they have, therefore, they, are, they do not uh, differ in terms of being illusion-like in that respect, but it is not to say that on all on all counts they have to be similar. If if if, if that is the case, if you still insist on saying that similarity should extend to everything, on 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 one if if, if they are similar on one count, then saying that. You too accept uh, the the realist. You too accept in mirror uh, dreams and illusions as uh, as zumba, as false, as false. 
yet, yet, according to what the illusion, the magician uh, does, they create it only a certain form, not everything. They make visions, they make beings, whatnot. But in that specific, in that specific episode, they kind of are uh, kind of limited to death. Not that they can create anything. Uh, whereas, if if whereas in your case, in the way you are claiming that things things to be similar in being not truly existence uh, should 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 be similar in all counts because maybe they are not being too naive uh, but in saying this a bit it's it's still uh what do you call connected with their difficulty in understanding that things lacking in an existence or things lacking true existence uh, could be predictable in one way or the other they just cannot be because they just don't have anything to uh, anchor that kind of a order or and that kind of a regulation that kind of a limitation so so because of that since they themselves uh, accept uh, analogies like dream and uh, illusions and they consider these as false then when a magical when a magician creates the magical illusions uh they create it, they create them in in certain specific images, not everything, anything, everything that they wanted. Whereas, whereas at the same time it is false, and it is false, and thus should not have any kind of a grounding for it to be one way but not the other. Then, even in your case also, the magical illusions should just appear in in all possible ways. Why is it that it only appears in one form, not something else? So that was the background objection, kind of background, kind of a objection to their objection, right? So the Stanza, the remaining of the stanza reads, suppose you object, but if a sentient being were like an illusion, then how could he take rebirth once having died? This is interesting. They have difficulty accepting lack of true existence in the light of things being dependently related. For things to be dependently related and necessarily dependent on particular causes and conditions for a particular result to happen, so thus there is some kind of a, uh, what do you call, some kind of a necessity, line of necessity between the cause and effect of, for, for the cause to be certain things, for the result to be certain things. Because of that, they have difficulty. They have difficulty saying that things lack true existence. In the, in the face of lacking true existence, for them, any such necessity, line of necessity or regulation order, uh, doesn't seem to make uh, make sense. Whereas from the Prasangika Madhyamika, the whole project of things being empty of inherent existence is kind of is kind of 
uh, what do you call uh, situated on the base of dependent origination not 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 in a blank space but on a dependent origination even when we say this something is something there has to be the basis of designation there not out of blue you can say something is something uh, but at the same time yeah, it makes perfect sense for things to be uh, dependently related, yet thoroughly, thoroughly free of any intrinsic existence, and that they kind of go, go together. So they have difficulty situating lack of inherent existence or lack of true existence on something that necessarily follows some kind of a, some kind of order, necessity, necessary situation, conditions for, for it to happen in a particular way. And so the, the, the stanza uh, 10 answers it, but not in an explicit way. So long as conditions are gathered together, the illusion lasts that long as well. How could a sentient being be truly existent merely because his continuum lasts longer? So the response is saying that such a difference, such a difference that a sentient being, yeah, sentient beings could take rebirth once they die. But the illusion creations, uh, illusory creations, the magicians' creations in, in human, human form, animal form, whatnot, they cannot re take rebirth. Because in one, there is the conditions present. In the other, there are no conditions. The necessary conditions are not there. Because of that, they behave in these different ways. But nonetheless, they do so utterly because of lacking any true existence of their own and completely contingent on dependent, dependency, dependencies on others without any kind of a subjective, objective kind of a intrinsic objective element in any whatsoever. Even, even things such as illusion, which is false, in, even in your understanding. So long as the conditions are present, such a such thing as illusion, uh, magical illusion, could remain long. So long as the conditions are intact, the magical illusions could also last. And, so, and as soon as the conditions uh, disappear, the magical illusion can disappear. So even something as delicate as magical illusion, there can be possibility of its lasting longer, so long if their conditions could be made to retain. And likewise, for sentient beings, make, taking rebirth is not out of choice or out of blue, it just happens accidentally. It has its causes. In the case of those who are born in samsara, ignorance and other ignorance and the karma and other are the conditions. So long as they are there, Sentient beings will take rebirth under the influence of afflictions and karma. And just as in the case of the illusions, if, if the conditions continue on, they could be expected to last long. And in this, in this regard, sentient beings and the illusions are same. In same that they are totally, they not only lack truly existence, but they are totally dependent on their conditions. And there is no contradiction whatsoever between the two. So that's so important. In the, and to the, the extent to which this dependency on conditions, causes and conditions is being emphasized 
is so much so right it it, it is uh so much so that there that that there uh, that, that it is not just enough for there to be causes and conditions, but the causes and conditions have to be particular, particular, and 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 depending on what comes together, the result can be expected. Likewise, not 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 the same kind of a uh, result from whatsoever kind of a combination is there in the causal respect. So there is this uh, what do you call uh, a dependency of necessity. Uh, in terms of the cause and effect relationship. Yet at the same time, the Prasangika Madhamikas are equally compatible in saying things like true existence, even in the light of such a infallibility. We speak of dependent origination as infallible. I sometimes understand this infallible uh, in not only that results come from the, come from the causes, but the infallible in the sense that the, the 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 details that go into the combination of the cause uh, would be infallible in terms of what details you can expect in the result. This may sound like there is almost some kind of an objective, uh, true reality out there for it to be such such determining, but for the and that true and that exactly is the problem. With the realist, that's thing, the reason, one of the reasons why they say things must have two existences is because of this, this rigidity, if I will, uh, if I may, kind of a rigidity between this relationship with cause and effect. Unless you accumulate the right cause, the right uh, uh, result cannot be expected. And that's nothing in contradiction with things lacking true existence. By the very fact that they depend necessarily depend on particular cause and condition. It is an indication that it utterly lacks any self-power. It's totally, thoroughly dependent. So that, that too has to be brought uh, to kind of harmony. So we sometimes go, we sometimes go yo-yo. <laughs> we sometimes go this way and this way. When we think of empowerment, when we think of things being lacking true existence, we almost go to the point of dropping everything, like nothing matters. But when we think of, oh, this needs to be done, this needs to be done, for this to be happen, for this to happen, then we kind of begin to think in line, in, in light of things having almost like intrinsic uh, objective reality of this, of its own. So we have difficulty kind of bringing the two together, bringing the two together in the understanding of the Prasangamika and because they're not only complementary, but they are supportive. Right, they're not only complemented, but they reinforce each other. In a way, they are, they are, they are one and the same thing. They are one and the same thing. They are two aspects of the same coin, two sides of the same coin. So, to that extent, one has to be trained in understanding this harmony between dependent origination and uh, emptiness. So. So when this was, when so long as conditions are gathered together, the illusion lasts that long as well. Like sentient beings last so long in samsara, because the conditions are there and they are not being attacked. Because of that, they last long. But something as delicate as illusions could also be ex expected to last long, if we could make make 
provision for their conditions to last longer. And their, their rejoinder to this is that no, they are not the same. The sentient beings have been around from time immemorial and they could even go on existing as sentient beings for long. Whereas things like illusion, magical illusion, dreams, they just, they just are only, only uh, short lasting. And there must be, there must be a difference between one being more true, the other being, uh, yeah, more false. There must be a difference in terms of their degree of how much they lack true existence. So we we can come up with so many different different reasons for things to have intrinsic, some kind of a objective reality of their own, right? Uh, on so many on so many accounts, that just as the realists are kind of uh, hanging on to uh, this fact that. Things, some things last long, some things last short. So, how could a sentient being be truly existence merely because his continuum lasts long? Because even among the things such as dream and magical illusions, that they are comfortable in accepting as false, as delicate, false, and like that. Even between them, they can differ in how long something lasts. Or one could speak of a long dream in terms of dreaming of a long history, something like that. Or, or in actual real uh, time also, you could speak of a difference uh, in the duration of the two. Then would you also say they differ in their falsity in different degrees? So that was the, that was the response. Let's now take the next one, the fourth objection. The objection is that there shouldn't be any, that what, what Prasangika Madhimikas are saying, that things lack true existence, will amount to contradict the Buddha's teachings on virtue and non-virtue. The distinction that the, the teachings have made I will not hold in the light of what the Prasangika Madhimikas are proposing, things like true existence. So their, their, their uh, objection is, if things are same, if, if illusion, Ill, magical illusion on the one hand and sentient beings on the other hand, are same in being lacking true existence. Then, just as magical constructs, magical appearances, magical creations, such as a person, if you kill them, you may not, uh, you you do not, or either you have to say you 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 incur. Uh, non-virtuous action, or you have to say that even if you kill sentient being, a real sentient being, you do not incur uh, non-virtue. Because they are both lacking true existence, and it is equal to saying none of them matter more than the other. They're just, they're just what you call mere constructs. Mere constructs with no 
with no what do you call uh, with no special what do you call latching uh, on some kind of a objective ground. And in that respect, the Buddha is teaching that when you, if you kill, if you engage in killing of a sentient being, you incur non-virtue. Dikpa. Dikpa is the Tibetan term. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be always deeds. Oh, yeah, even afflictions can be Dikpa or non-virtue. Hatred is a non-virtuous affliction. Anyway, here in the translation, it, is, it uses negative force. It doesn't say negative action, negative deed, necessarily. Anyway, um, anyway so that was the ob- objection. In actions like murdering and so forth of an illusory person, there is no negative force since it has no mind, but with someone having an illusion-like mind, Positive and negative forces accrue. So that was the response, but the 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 objection, which is implied here, uh, alludes to what I shared earlier. Yeah, but the commentaries make this uh, explanation that even if it is a magical magical creation or a or a appearance in the dream. If you engage in killing towards them, uh, one will not one will not incur a complete nguishi, nguishi, actual killing act, killing misdeed of killing. So one would not incur the complete non-virtue of a, of killing an actual sentient being. But nonetheless, when you approach it with anger, with ill will, what not then that motivation part of it would have its own due of non-virtue. And so it is not that, it's not that when you engage, when you engage in, or yeah, when you engage in a act of killing towards a magical appearance or towards a, a magical construct, that there would be no, no negativity whatsoever. Uh, it will depend on uh, with what kind of a motivation you approach. When you approach with ill will, strong ill will, rage, whatnot, um, at least that aspect of the action would incur uh, negativity. But uh, the action as a whole will not incur a complete act of killing. Whereas in the case of sentient beings, uh, it will. Because Sentient beings have mind, the others do not have. So again, it brings that for mind to be there, it has to have its own preceding cause, likewise for everything. And because magical illusion do not have mind, illusions do not have mind, magical creations of beings do not have mind, and they are lacking true existence, and on that regard, they are same with actual sentient beings, it doesn't entail that the actual sentient beings would not have mind, or that the magical illusions would also have mind. Because what what takes for there to be mind in someone is whether they have uh, had the causes for it. 
in that continuum, uh, not otherwise. Mere, mere ability to uh, create illusions is not enough. So again, it brings home this topic of how things being lacking true existence is is totally situated, uh, totally uh, placed or situated in in this in this realm in in this in the, in the fact of things being dependently uh, related, dependently originated, and dependently originated in in such a way that. Uh, there is a strict, a strict one-to-one reliance between cause and cause and effect, and the and the complexity of it, and not otherwise. It's just not just hodgepodge. So this this too has to be uh, kind of seen to be complementary, not contradictory, but complementary and supportive, and reinforcing each other. It's because of things being dependently related. They lack inherent existence. It's because things lack inherent existence, they are they must be dependently related. So that's how the understanding of the two should be kind of able to. Uh, so to this, yeah, in actions like murdering and so forth of an illusion person, illusory person, there is no negative force since it has no mind. But with someone having an illusion like mind, positive and negative forces accrue. So this this point should affect this points to this thing that uh, no matter how much we try to make mind from any any some other things, we cannot succeed. <laughs> and it is not just uh, the case with mind; it's with everything. Actually, it's not saying mind is special. In needing a prayer, in needing a cause, uh, but but for everything, everything needs a cause uh, for it to happen, right? And the 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 magical uh, magical elements, the magical concoctions, the magical mantras, they just don't have the ability. They just don't have the pardon. They just don't have the ability uh, to create mind. It's just simple that. It has to have causes for that. So on the on the part of the causes and the combinations, the requirement of that, it is so strict. It is something that you cannot mess up with. It's so infallible and in a way rigid also. In 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 terms of the requirements. Yet at the same time. That's because things like inherent existence. Because of that, there is this 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 dependency uh, there, necessary dependency there. So their their seeking clarification is how come both of them, the the illusory person and a real person, how come both of them being lacking. Being same in lacking true existence, how come one has mind, one doesn't have mind? So, in the case, the answer is in the case of the illusory person, the materials that go into creating the magic, magical illusion, such as some kind of a lotion, some kind of a mantra, they just don't have the ability to create that creation to have a mind. Whereas, magical illusions can be made to appear in so many different ways. 
And that itself is dependent on so many different causes and conditions. Not just just one cause and condition can make them appear in different appearances. Each appearances they have to, they, they can come up, has, takes, takes a special effort, special effort or special uh, conditioning that goes into the, into the collection of causes and conditions. And that's how uh, magically, magical persons not only may appear like having mind, uh, but could appear to have any other things. And these appearances, diversity of appearances is itself uh, also dependent on diversity of conditions going into it, irrespective of whether what they appear is actually that or not. But appearances in themselves, as diverse as they are, it takes diverse conditions in making their appearances, including someone appear to be actual sentient being, but not in reality. And the reason why, why variety of results take need, variety of causes, is because one cause cannot create all the results. And that's quite telling about, about the nature of things, about things being totally dependent on, say in the case of compounded phenomena, things being completely dependent, completely totally 100% dependent on their causes for, their, for them to be whatever they happen to be. And because of their diversity, it takes, it, 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 it reflects that the causes also should be diverse. Because if there were to be just one single uh, cause that can create any, everything, then it's different, but that's not the way, that's not possible. So the responses are all here in stanza 12. Because mantras and so forth lack the ability, ability to create or to produce mind, they, yeah, ability, they do not have the ability, conditions. The ability here, ability they gain only when the causes and conditions are there, right? So they do not have that ability. They cannot produce a mind in an illusion even illusory ones that arise from varying conditions are of varying kinds. Uh, so here, if even illusory ones, here, actually even the one that is being spoken of particularly is the magical illusions and creations, they can appear in so many different ways, including as sentient beings. So even as sentient beings, they could appear like that. Likewise, they could appear so many different ways. That arise means appear, right? Oh, arise, that appear, that arise in a magical illusion, magical illusion. There can be many, including some appearing as sentient beings. And that's because from varying causes, varying conditions. Because of varying conditions, the resultant appearances and arising can also be a variety. Since nowhere is there one condition with the ability to produce all things. I guess we have time after this. If people have any one, two questions. So here, it, the, the, the thing about mind is just an example. It, it, it should be applied. One again should not end up thinking, oh, mind is special in really needing a special of course, it's the same with everything. 
because the, the, the discussion was about about having mind or not, about whether the killing will be actual killing or not, whether they will take rebirth or not. So it was the question, the discussion was surrounding about mind. Otherwise, they could have picked up some other quality and say, why is it that it has this and the other one doesn't have this? Again, the same answer. Because the efforts that go into creating magical uh, illusions do not include the causes for creating mind. And likewise with other things also. So we can speak of real bird, real something. They cannot, real, real part, right? They cannot. So it applies the same. Um, Geshla, this is just a side note comment, but I thought it was very helpful that you pointed out that even killing an illusory person uh, has an impact on the mind of the person doing that. That, mm. that is still non-virtue. Um, that came to mind because when I was on the plane and at the airport, I saw so many people playing first-person shooter games on their cell phone. So you're, it looks like you have a gun and you're shooting people, and they're just sitting there doing that while waiting for the plane. To and that's what you're spending hours and hours doing on a phone. It's non-virtue, even if it's not yes, a real. Person. Someone could really emotionally invest in it and really do so with rage, right? And that's that's. Equal to accruing what we call the non-virtue of the jorwa, the non-virtue of the uh, preparation, the non-virtue of the preparation. So the actions take place with preparation, actual conclusion. So the negativities can range, can can span all the range, and depending on how much you completed, not you would accrue negativity of that of that level. Yeah, maybe last thing. Uh, when we, again, in these discussions, we have to take time in really understanding, unpacking what does true existence means. What true existence means. And it's difficult to pinpoint clearly, but in, in reliance with, in reliance on scriptures, particularly in Mulam, uh, not Mulamad Mekakara. Madamika Avatara, entry to the middle way. Chandrakiti speaks of how probing into something and not finding something could be equally done from a conventional way and ultimate way. So the conventional way of not finding something upon analysis is looking for cup in the cup. So looking for cup in the cup and not finding it is not the big, big, big deal. So that's very important to understand. We may think that, oh, I cannot find. I mean, very often we will hear people, uh, and even the scriptures deal with that topic from that aspect of how, where is it, we cannot find it. But that may give us an impression, that, oh, maybe not finding it is the emptiness in that way. Because that is not. So not finding cup in the cup is not an, em not an emptiness of the cup. Yes, it is unfindable in that way, but at the same time, it is unfindable in the ultimate probe system, in the ultimate probe way. So the ultimate probe way is a little difficult. What would constitute probing in an ultimate sense? Not seeing cup in the cup, but what are you looking, looking for? We would easily say, oh, intrinsic cup. Well, 
right? But what do we really mean by that intrinsic cup? So when you look for intrinsic cup and don't find it, then you don't find intrinsic cup, and that is supposed to be emptiness. But how is looking for intrinsic cup different from looking for cup in the cup? Because the difference is, if if intrinsic cup were to exist, the the ultimate analysis should be able to be faced with it. If so, and because the ultimate analysis uh, do not find intrinsic cup, and it is considered a big deal, that not finding is finding it. But the, even the ultimate analysis cannot find cup in the cup. But that's not a big deal. Cup in the cup. Cup in the cup. Is not meant to be. Meant meant to meant to withstand the analysis if it were to exist. But if intrinsic cup were meant to exist, where where were existing, then it is meant to be found. And thus, the ultimate, ultimate analysis, not finding the intrinsic cup, is, the, is, 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 is finding the ultimate truth. So, so that alludes to our expression in the scriptures, where it says, not finding, not seeing is the supreme seeing. So it is in that respect. Because if and if intrinsic cup were to exist, it should be seen through that analysis. And because that analysis doesn't see it after having uh, pursued it to the fullest, then its non-finding is finding that it doesn't exist. But that's not the case with looking for cup in the cup. There's no way it can be found in any through any analysis. Uh, but at the same time. It is not supposed to supposed to be supposed to appear if it were to be existing. If the cup were to be existing in the cup, uh, did I say that right? Anyway, uh, we'll leave this at. Yeah, in the case of the conventional such, when we look for cup in the cup, in the in the first place we are looking for something that cannot be found. And it cannot. It, and if it is not found, uh, it's 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 a big deal. It is not a big deal. But when we're looking for intrinsic cup, although yes, intrinsic cup is not not there, not found. But when pursued through the ultimate analysis, so ultimate analysis itself is is characterized by what one is looking for: cup or the intrinsic cup. So through such an analysis, if intrinsic cup is not found, then that's a big deal because that shows it's non-existent. Because if it were to exist, it should show up, and it didn't because of that its non-existence is understood. But in the case of the cup, even not finding it in the cup is is not 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 because oh well. I'm confused. Let's leave it there. Otherwise, it's taking a long time. Okay. Anyway, I was saying in the 
entry to the middle way, it says that if you carry out the seven-point analysis, uh, both either through conventional means or through in ultimate means, in both ways, you cannot find whatever you're looking for. But the, but the, the non-finding of in the ultimate analysis is a big deal, not of the other one. Okay. Sorry. <laughs>